patch of blue is destined to be talked about wherever motion pictures are discussed. A patch of blue introduces an exciting new star, Elizabeth Hartman, in the sensitive, glowing story of a blind girl's discovery of a world she has never before known. This is also the story of a young man who helps her, a refreshing characterization by Sidney Poitier, with all the warmth and humor of his Academy Award performance in Lilies of the Field. In contrast, shock drama stems from the violent emotional impact of the girl's home life. Provoked by Shelley Winters as the wanton mother, A Patch of Blue is also a story of rare understanding, a film with something to say, and it says it with humor, <laughs> mounting excitement, gripping suspense, and unforgettable entertainment. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. And this week we are celebrating Sidney Poitier's birthday as well as Black History Month, talking about the 1965 drama A Patch of Blue. So this was our poll winner by a very narrow margin. I believe it was this and what was the runner-up? In the Heat of the Night was also in contention. I would assume that maybe that was another one thrown in. That sounds about right. It was a very narrow one-point what separated this from the runner-up. And Sam would like to maintain that she did not vote. <laughs> I didn't vote, but I'm happy with the result. We are talking about A Patch of Blue, which I'm sure most people would say maybe is not Sidney Poitier's best film in terms of representative of his output. It did not win him an Oscar. It went under the radar outside of winning a Best Supporting Actress Oscar, which we'll talk about in a bit. For the uninitiated, this is the story of a young woman named Selena, played by Elizabeth Hartman, who is blind. Through a series of events, gets to go to a local park and meets a man named Gordon, played by Sidney Poitier, who teaches her how to live her own independent life. This is a movie I like, but I approach knowing that there are problems with it. What is everybody's background with A Patch of Blue prior to recording? Dre, I'm going to start with you. You know what? This was my very first time seeing this. I've seen a number of his films. You guys know I had recommended In the Heat of the Night, which I find has so many different angles. I've seen Lilies of the Fields, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, the big hitters. This was new to me. And I absolutely adored it. It was a nice surprise. I'm always happy to bring movies into Drea's life. Because it always feels like Drea is so cool and she's seen everything. Oh, so cool. (laughs) Sam, what about you? What was your background prior to today? This just goes to show how amazing and varied our different film backgrounds are. Because Lilies of the Field is my most recent Sidney Poitier discovery but A Patch of Blue is the one that I have history with. To be honest with you, I can't remember the first time that I saw this movie. I know that it had a huge effect on me when I was trying to dive into classic cinema in high school. My sophomore year, I started a classic movie club It had about two members. It wasn't really successful at all, but the really small group that we had, I would put movies on for. There wasn't really a vote. It was more of a dictatorship on my part. And this is one of the movies that I decided to show. I don't know why. It's really dark, even for high schoolers. I showed it to these kids. And At the end of the year, when we had our discussion about what our favorite films were, I believe some other ones I showed were Rebel Without a Cause, the 1938 version of Marie Antoinette. And every single person, including my English teacher, who was part of the group, said that Apache Blue was their favorite by far. So that was a really cool moment. I loved introducing that film to some people. It's just been the closest Sidney Poitier film to my heart, and he's my favorite living actor. It's stacked very high as far as meaningful films to me. I've seen this movie several times. I actually saw this in film class in high school. 
I have no idea why we were showing it. Maybe because as I tell people about classic cinema, it's a very white genre. Pre-1960, you weren't getting a lot of African-American actors in significant leading roles like this, where they weren't made fun of, or it was considered quote unquote, a race movie. This is really about Sidney Poitier's character being this young, educated black man living a life of relative leisure. And that was different. That was different for 1965. I watched it from that historical standpoint first, and I really enjoy it. I still very much enjoy this movie. Watching it now, I have back and forth issues with that. I have back and forth issues with how this movie portrays disability and blindness. But at the end of the day, it's still a significant movie if you have to look at Poitier's career, his relationship for better or worse with white audiences, and our continued issues that we have with the portrayal of disability in cinema. So I think A Patch of Blue ends up being a lot more significant than it was probably considered at the time. This is a film that was directed by the little known director Guy Green. If you don't know, he directed just 25 movies. This was really his biggest film to date. He did a couple other movies, but never really a big name. He'd also dabbled in cinematography and was a cinematographer turned director. So this isn't a movie that has a lot of technical whiz bang to it. It's a very small, intimate film, only has about a dozen locations. It's a really depressing movie. I don't know about you guys, but this is a movie where you really got to be in the right frame of mind to watch this. Absolutely. I've been talking up Sidney Poitier to everyone I know for a decade. And my sister, who also loves classic movies, is one of those people. Since this is my favorite Sidney Poitier film, I've been trying to get her to watch it for so long. But I keep telling her, you have to be ready for something sad. And she never is. So we never see it but I totally understand what you mean. That's why looking back, I'm so surprised at my 16 year old self for trying to show this movie to a bunch of sophomores and somehow it worked. I find it interesting that you think of it as something sad because I actually found so much hope in the ending, not to jump all the way to the end, but as Kristen alluded, this is a film about this blind girl, a blind white girl, which is significant. She's uneducated, illiterate, abused. She lives with her alcoholic mother, played by Shelley Winters, who won an Oscar for this, which really surprises me, as I found her one note. And then they also live with Shelley Winters' father, so the girl's grandfather, who is also a drunk. He runs the exciting gamut from being kind of nice to her when he's sober to mean Whereas the mom is just always mean. What an exciting web. And this girl is in a big city, but she's homebound. And she's never been allowed an education. She's barely allowed out. She finds this way to convince them to let her go to the park, which is where she meets Sidney Poitier's character. They strike up an accidental friendship. The reason that I didn't find the end sad at all is... I was so grateful for this whole movie because of the racial elements. And I thought they were really well handled. There's times where he's with this girl in public and there's white people looking at them with distaste or looking at him and judging him. And then obviously this backbone of their relationship of him as a black man at this time, building a friendship with this girl. And she's someone who's, for the first half of it, he doesn't think that she knows what he looks like at all. He's not even sure if she understands the idea of race until she tells the story of her youth. But I found it so breath of fresh air. I love movies that are about human connections, positive human connections, especially when there's this possibility for darkness. Honestly, if this whole movie had been done and he had been a white character and we'd taken out all of the subtext and the conflict and the race elements, I honestly would have felt so much more nervous for her because he is. He was, what, 35 when they filmed this? 
and her character's meant to be 18. That's what I was waiting for. If it was a film that wasn't Sidney Poitier, literally any other actor, I'd be like, oh, he's going to take advantage of this situation somehow, good or bad, because that's the Sidney Poitier thing of he's almost saint-like in so many things. I was never worried he was going to take advantage, but I did like that he acknowledged complexity of their relationship and that to me there was still this possibility of future there. There was nothing but good choices by the end. And normally so many movies, because you're building conflicts, that's how you're telling story, you're normally watching so many bad choices. That's what it is. I just liked that these people were making good choices. How mom does that sound of me? And I'm not even a mom. This movie doesn't make me depressed in the sad sense. I come at it from how little disability has changed in the sense that this is also the story of a young woman who has grown up blind, who has been considered nothing short of a burden by her mother and is just seen as something to cart around and to make Roseanne, the Shelley Winters character, feel better about herself. How generous she is. She's let her blind daughter live with them and put beads on a string. She's practically dentured labor at that point. It's a story about Selena not just seeking her first crush, which this is a love story more than anything else, but it's also about somebody teaching her how to be independent, which is something that I still don't think we see a lot of in disabled narratives. This is a movie where the couple goes on a date to do his grocery shopping. He teaches her how to cross a street and how to notice what incoming traffic is like. Those mundane things that you would think a parent would teach their child, especially if their child has a physical limitation. That's something mundane that is not showcased in disability narratives. So when I watch this movie, I just become angry with the state of how that is still avoided in movies today. And so I celebrate A Patch of Blue for that. But at the same time, this is also, I don't want to call it a white savior film, but we'll talk about Poitier's complicated legacy in a second. But I still feel that this is a movie that almost gets me angry. See, I'm glad to hear that you liked the independence element. It's one of the reasons, like I said, with the good choices that I loved this and was so surprised by this. They're on this date and he's taking her and from the minute they start interacting, he never kid gloves her. He doesn't try to baby her. In almost any social situation, normally in that scenario, the guy or whomever would just do it for the girl. Do you know what I mean? He would take her hand. He would probably get as close to her as possible. He would move her down the street. I was so conscious of Sydney's character always being a little distanced from her. And that's, again, part of having that racial construct in there as well. Maybe it was ingrained of him to keep a little distance from this white woman in public. But he also seemed so matter of fact. It wasn't about being benevolent. It wasn't about, I'm going to take the time to do this for you. To him, it just seemed matter of fact of, oh, we're walking down the street. So I'm going to explain how stop signs work or how traffic works. I liked that because I never felt it was pandering. And that's a lot of his performance, right? Those exact scenes could have been done in a way where this guy felt very proud of himself or felt like he was going out of his way. But this, the character that you're getting from Poitier, it makes sense to him that, of course, this is how he would talk to another human. And if he were her, he would want to know these things. Kristen's right because... You do not see that a lot in any films. There's so many films that have characters with disabilities where they are kid-gloved or it's not looking at how they're being integrated and taught independence. The characters who interact with them, how they handle their disability, it is more like the mother. That idea of the burdenness or if it's something that they have to navigate rather than, oh, interesting. I can teach this person something I know, which I think is how a lot of people interact with the world. Oh, I know this thing. I would like to teach this other person this thing I know. Poitier, not a lot of people. That's a fine line to pull off. He's just very talented. 
You guys both are mentioning the grocery store date scene. And I feel like maybe we're reading this film a little bit differently because, and it does touch on what both of you guys are saying. I've seen this movie many times. Maybe it's the subtleties of the decade and the times. I never read their relationship as heavily romantic. The thing is, is the closest relationship it reminds me of is it's almost like a My Man Godfrey thing, where right out the gate, you know that Irene is in love with Godfrey. She'd do anything for him. She's falling for him hard, just like Selena is with Gordon. But Gordon, as is with Godfrey, they both stand back quite a lot. There's obviously an admiration there. They want to help the female lead. They want to do what they can for them and teach them the ways of the world. But there's never a gross amount of affection. And they never say, I love you, or purposely kiss them, or do anything like that. Again, maybe it's the racial tension of the time. And then another scene specifically that I feel like pushes it back a little bit for me is the conversation that Gordon's character has with his brother. And the brother is like, oh, what are you trying to do with this girl? She's not for you. A romance isn't going to work out. And Gordon's saying, oh, it's not like that. I'm just trying to help her. The ending speaks a lot to that too. Just the beauty of the ending. But I love how much Selena loves him. And you can see his hesitance when he grabs her hands and pulls her back. And just the look of confusion on his face. Just the fact that his main goal is to help her, not to love her. You have to admire that. It's a very unique relationship. And even if it does become romantic after the credits roll, it's still not the be-all, end-all, which I think is really interesting. I totally agree. And that's one of the reasons I didn't find it sad at all, because it wasn't to me a romance in any conventional sense, but it was a film that acknowledged how this man and woman's relationship would lead to levels of affection that both of them were missing in the rest of their life and fulfilling those. It absolutely made sense to me. I think of When I was 18, anyone who was kind to me in an unexpected way, I would also have been like, I love you. You're so hungry for it anyway, let alone a character in this sad scenario that Selena's in. There's something so nice about the give and take of their friendship and him knowing that she was in love with him in this way. But I also think there was a nice complexity, and I know Kristen has more to say about this. It was just murky enough in a believable way when they're in the kitchen and their friendship has moved along and he's done so much for her and she's already decided she's in love with him. She kisses him. And there's this moment where I liked the murkiness because he is clearly responding as a man. There is this beautiful young woman who looks up to him with such, pardon the pun on the looks up to him, but you get it, but sees him, I can't stop, with such reverence and admiration. And who knows if he's felt that in a relationship before. Having someone who sees you in such a good way, there's things that they're both getting out of it, but that he also has the self-preservation to put the brakes on it and say, There's a lot of different kinds of love, and I know that you think it's this kind, but it could be something else. But also, he does linger in her arms for a moment when they kiss. There's some nice textural gray stuff there that doesn't make him just a saint among men. Kristen, you had more, you wanted to dig in historically with Poitier's characters, and then maybe this specifically. There's a couple things to break down. Sam is completely right when she says that the subtleties of the time, you're not going to get a heavy reliance on romance for a multitude of reasons. I want to keep the racial thing separate for a second because that is such a huge component of it. But from a disability angle, you have to look at the history of disabled narratives. Two years later, Audrey Hepburn would play the world's most beautiful blind woman 
that's very much a pandering type of movie where it's about, oh, watch Audrey Hepburn stumble over herself. If you listen to the episode I did on Wait Until Dark, go listen to it because I had a lot of thoughts. But here you have a very pretty girl who has a pretty disability. Blindness is always presented as something very simple where you don't have to alter a woman's appearance and she's still attractive. So there's that. But at the end of those movies, mostly they're damaged goods. You don't necessarily expect her and Poitier to get together because she's going to school to learn to be independent, which on the one hand is great. I love this movie forsakes a relationship for her to go and find her own person. There's a narrative reason for them not to be together, which is that she's never been in love. She's gravitating to the first person that is kind to her. To have them fall in love is like watching Keanu and Sandra Bullock fall in love at the end of Speed. That's not going to last because your relationship was built on a high pressure situation. So I never buy that in any movie. And I'm glad that the movie doesn't give us that here. But at the same time, she's still treated as a child. You're not going to have that relationship because of the grand narrative of disabled people being childlike. You have the racial component. Sidney Poitier was often criticized and you can read the work of James Baldwin is a great example of this. He was really criticized by black intellectuals for appeasing white audiences specifically. He's non-controversial. He was often presented asexually. He was a black man for the fence sitters coming out in the mid to late sixties when civil rights was a very violent, chaotic thing filled with riots and black Panthers carrying guns. Sidney Poitier was an example, unfortunately, and became this pawn as this representative of what white audiences wanted to see from black actors, which was that they were upwardly mobile. They passed for white, even though they weren't. But at the same time, especially it wasn't until Poitier did, it wasn't until in the heat of the night is most, especially in guess who's coming to dinner where he is in this mixed relationship that he was able to show himself as not necessarily a sexual being, but a romantic being watching this movie in 1965, we weren't there yet. There's still that separation of, well, he can be nice to a white girl, but they're not going to have the sexual relationship. They're not going to end up together. And really, the whole movie's metaphor is love is literally blind. Take that how you will. It makes sense that these two don't end up together. There's both a narrative reason, but there's also this deep, rich, disturbing, convoluted history that comes with why they aren't together. So you have both the narrative and this history, the studio mandate of like, nope, these two aren't going to get together from the get-go. That is so true. I adore Sidney Poitier for a million reasons, not least in which he broke so many barriers. But at the same time, you make a really great point. If he hadn't as you say, pandered the way he did, if he wasn't such a gentleman, such an eloquent, handsome, charming, conventional person, would he have had a career? And personally, I think not, because there were so many Black actors and actresses who weren't as educated, who didn't carry themselves as well as Sidney Poitier, and look where their careers ended up. Well, most of the time, though, they ended because of studio issues and racism. I mean, you look at Lena Horne and Dorothy Dandridge and some of the actors that had come out before. I mean, we're not saying Step and Fetch It is a great example of race relations in the early time period. Poitier is really this perfect storm. Absolutely. I was going to say something to that effect. The studios were getting ready to have an actor like that. He was just the perfect package at the right time. Right. I know there will be somebody listening to this being like three white women talking about Sidney Poitier and the history of race and cinema. Poitier, there's so many different elements to him, which as a personage makes him so fascinating. He is the guy that the studio saw as the entry into integrating performers of color. And that says something that he had to have not just the good looks, but he had to be an eloquent speaker. He had to be a person that you could believe that a white person could believe was a doctor was a cop you weren't going to get that if you look differently and that's 
something we as classic film lovers always have to recognize and understand and acknowledge that Poitier both is an example of Hollywood racism, but he also is able to transcend that. Please go read James Baldwin because he talks a lot and Donald Bogle as well about this history of black actors and the struggles that they had and how Poitier's legacy is really messy because of how he was perceived as the actor for white people, that there is this real pushback from black performers of the time who felt that Poitier didn't represent them at all. And that's really something that we don't have time to discuss in this entire episode, but it says a lot about the type of person that he is in a patch of blue and, and really all of his films. It's also a perfect example, like you were saying, this cultural construct of racism in Hollywood in a variety of things. One of those being very specific roles offered to people of color and especially for black actors and actresses, but also when you have so few roles for people of color in general, and then there's only then a handful of actors doing everything. If you have one person that has to represent an entire race, then it's problematic for everyone. There's no monolith. So for all of the people who then don't feel represented by that person, rightfully, they will be upset by it, which is a lot of where James Baldwin's angles came from. Much smarter than I've said, because he was brilliant. The other side of it is when there's only a couple of those roles, and then they keep writing the same things, like you're writing mammy roles or maid roles for women or subservient or like in Sidney Poitier's having these elevated almost to the point of disbelief of black men who are in positions of power who do nothing wrong. The characters aren't allowed the complications that an actual human would have because they have to represent a race in a false way. You're right. There's much too much for us to unpack. And you're also very right. There are many people who speak much more specifically and knowledgeably about this that aren't my white self or your lovely white self. So there's a lot to explore in this. I would love to pivot to Elizabeth Hartman. Like I said, this whole movie was new to me. This woman, she was 22 when this was filmed. Her character's 18. And she is so wonderful in this that immersive character when you're lucky enough to watch a film that you're convinced that that person actually just lived in the world of the film and the production showed up where they are not just because i do think she handled the fake acting blind really well which she did but she had a very rare ability to come across as someone who had sustained a lot of damage but was not presenting as a victim, but also not Pollyanna. There was just so much of what she was doing. You were so sympathetic to her, but she wasn't saccharine at all. And there's those great moments of joy and discovery. Like when she first gets to the park, she's taking her shoes off and just having the sensory experience of feeling grass on her feet. Her character contained multitudes and the actress handled it so well. And I was really crushed to read about her real life story, which of course, because she was new to me, I was like, oh, did she just leave acting and go have a wonderful life? And she did not. This was the first time I'd seen Elizabeth Hartman in anything. If you are a fan of 70s films, you might know her as the plain Jane in the Clint Eastwood feature, The Beguiled, which is also really a brilliant movie. No! Yes. Oh my god! Okay. He is the one, spoiler alert, that throws his ass down the stairs. It's nice. great. Yeah. I have never seen that, but that sounds amazing. One day we will do that movie because it's great. She also did The Group with Candace Bergen and Jessica Walter. She did several films, worked, I think, into the 1980s, but unfortunately struggled with mental illness and took her own life. Very, very unfortunate. I just want to throw out also for the Don Bluth fans out there that she voiced the lead mouse in The Secret of Nim. That's the only movie I know Mrs. From. Frisbee, that's right. This was a huge deal. I mean, she was picked out of 
thousands of women creators did a short film called A Cinderella Named Elizabeth that focused on finding her as a young unknown actress in Youngstown, Ohio, showed how she went to the Braille Institute of America and learned how to be a blind person. And I hate to say that phrase because it sounds so pandering, but it's true. What Elizabeth Hartman does that's different from other blind characters. You look at Jane Wyman in Magnificent Obsession, or you look at Audrey Hepburn in Wait Until Dark, and you see a glamorous portrayal of blindness. You know, they just wear cool sunglasses and they stick their hands out in front of them. You just want to help them. They're so glamorous and they're so beautiful and they're so tragic and flawed. Selena's not like that. Elizabeth Hartman doesn't play her that way. For one, and I cannot stress this enough, it is incredibly rare, even to this day, to see disability in any way, shape, or form from a person who is not wealthy or not financially stable. Middle class, poor, disabled, does not exist in Hollywood. Here, she's white trash, for lack of a better word. She is illiterate. She doesn't know how to do anything. She talks with a very pronounced twang. There's nothing glamorous about her performance. I don't consider her a character that you pity, per se, but there's nothing beautiful and tragic about her performance. It just is. It's tragic because her family has not encouraged her to be a person. They don't see her as a person. They see her as something to mock and ridicule and exploit. What Elizabeth Hartman does is create this empathy and this vibrancy for a woman who does want to be independent, who does want her to be her own person and is just stymied not necessarily by her disability but that's part of it but also by the fact that her family just does not give a crap about her what's really fascinating too is that this whole dynamic is completely turned on its head because as you mentioned she's blind and she's uneducated that's a huge part of her outlook on life, and it's a huge part of her life. She's so limited because of her lack of education in addition to her blindness. Not only does Gordon teach her little bits of how to be an independent blind woman, she also teaches her basic grammar, which is so fascinating for a movie in the 60s. That's something to consider too, just regardless of the blindness, this is a black man trying to educate a white woman, which I'm sure a lot of ladies clutched their pearls back then at that alone, on top of everything else. It is one of those complexities that I really enjoyed about this. One of you had mentioned his brother as well, which was such a great character to balance off the idea of Gordon as this perfect model. How he treats Selena being able to educate her. It's hilarious to me because you see him changing once towards the end. He's like, oh, I have to change. He literally changes from one dress suit to another. All right, these guys only wear suits, but they're very obviously educated. Yet they are also, because of the conversations with the brother, not in denial about the world that's around them and how that world will perceive Gordon and Selena. Gordon's inability to really explain his relationship with Selena to his brother even, I don't think he could explain it to himself because of when it was set and all of the dynamic racial and class. There's something that he was getting out of that relationship of being a teacher figure, of being someone that someone else had something to learn from. I've sort of taken a detour here. There's so many great little elements of this. The idea of what he is trying to convey to her. And there's also something in how she handles her blindness. In their home, she is very comfortable. She doesn't leave the four walls that she lives in. She's in charge of dinner and she's given responsibilities and certain things. But then there's also these very clear impediments he gifts her with a pair of sunglasses and that great scene where she's looking for the sunglasses we can see them because they're inside clear picture but she can't find them because she's feeling the table and stuff around that there's texture to both of these characters 
about her blindness that's so much bigger than just help the poor blind girl. I know we're all feeling <laughs> for the wait until dark of it. A movie which I definitely enjoy and can definitely acknowledge all of the ways that it's falling short. None of this texture isn't in that kind of film. To me, whatever research she did, it was coming across in the script and in the performance and then in their relationship to each other of what she was learning as a blind person in the world, just a thoroughness to it. I love that you bring all that up. It segues into the character that is considered the more controversial element of this movie. More than Sidney Poitier, which is Shelley Winters. She won the Oscar for being in this movie. Six years after she had already won an Oscar, I believe in the same category for The Diary of Anne Frank, she was nominated several times throughout her career. She would be nominated one more time after this for The Poseidon Adventure. Her performance is Roseanne. It's fine. Maybe because I've seen so many movies that are poverty porn in the sense that they're just a horrible person who is horrible for no reason where Selena is the life Cinderella character scrubbing the floor and being blind. Roseanne's character is the wicked mother. She is boozy. She's blousy. She wants Selena to do nothing but stay in the house all day and work for her. And eventually there's this illusion that they are going to move to work in a brothel. <laughs> There's an unspoken discussion about prostitution and how Selena is going to fit into that. Shelley Winters, I always feel, got a bad rap that she did play into because she usually got recognized for playing the ugly girl. She got nominated for Place in the Sun, one of her first Oscar nominations for playing not Elizabeth Taylor. And there's a lot of controversy into Shelley Winter's public persona and her personal persona and, and how she filmed certain movies. But I feel like as Roseanne, I never understand this Oscar. No. What else was nominated? That's, a, that's <laughs> something to... Like I said, I was surprised when I was looking this up after I saw it because obviously I'm familiar with Shelley Winters and I do think she has a talent, but her character in this is entirely one note. She has a certain kind of anger and resentment, and it comes across in every single piece she does. There's no dips and valleys. There's no moments of bitter regret, or she holds this against Selena for this reason, or a moment of softness where maybe she feels bad about nothing. She is just angry and bitter the whole time. Honestly, to the degree that like when her friend comes over, and there was a second where I couldn't tell them apart. I'm like, oh, if I didn't know these actresses more, they would be interchangeable to me. The best thing about Shelley Winter's character is the writing of how they manage to convey that these women are prostitutes and that they're going to turn Selena into a prostitute without ever saying any of that. And none of that has to do with her performance. And that's the unspoken element of that plot twist. I love that we have to make it a horrible, horrible plot twist. If she doesn't get out, she's going to be a sex slave. And that's the worst thing. It sounds like they're not even looking into her consent. So you have questions of how rapey is this going to get? In case you were curious, Shelley Winters and Elizabeth Hartman were the only two nominated for acting categories for this movie. Sidney Poitier was not even shortlisted. Ooh. Shelley Winters that year was up against Joyce Redman and Maggie Smith, both for Othello, so they split the vote. Peggy Wood for The Sound of Music. She played, I'm assuming, the mother superior. All the nuns look the same in that movie. And Ruth Gordon for playing the mom in Inside Daisy Clover. I can probably explain how this happened. So you have two performances from the same movie. That splits the vote. So really... Anything else at that point is collateral damage. If it was up to me, Shelley Winter's character is the most overt. It's the most flamboyant. It's the Madonna whore thing all over again. You're either going to give it to the nun for The Sound of Music, or you're going to give it to Shelley Winters. Poor Ruth Gordon, though, I think should have won that. Because if you have not seen Inside Daisy Clover, one day we will discuss it on this podcast, because Ruth Gordon's really good in it. Playing a very similar-ish role in terms of crazy mom. 
I haven't seen Inside Daisy Clover. That's one of the few Natalie Wood movies that I'm missing. Oh, it's so great in all the worst ways. And then if you're curious, Elizabeth Hartman, she was also nominated for lead actress. She was up against Samantha Egar for The Collector, which if you've not seen The Collector, it is the only time William Wyler did a horror movie and it's brilliant. I want to back that up. I double recommend The Collector. The Collector's great. Julie Andrews for The Sound of Music, Simone Signore for Ship of Fools, and the winner was Julie Christie for Darling. 1966 Oscars was very odd. Um, Sam, what did you think about Shelley Winters? The one thing that I will say about Shelley Winters and getting that Best Supporting Actress Oscar, in general, Hollywood labels acting as playing something that isn't yourself. And a lot of people in Hollywood were very quick to claim that Shelley was a very sweet person in real life, very understated. And so a lot of people in Hollywood had a lot of respect for her to jump on and play that kind of role. And even I have a lot of respect for her for doing something like that. Somebody has to play the bitchy, racist, floozy character I wouldn't want it to be me, so much props to Shelley Winters for doing it. <laughs> I disagree on that. Actresses love this kind of role. The kind of role where you get to be bigger than life and dramatic and complaining about things. No, they love hold it. Hold on, hold on, Drea. There's a difference between gorgeous, floozy, baby face Barbara Stanwyck and dumpy, floozy, trash Roseanne in this film. If we talk about that, then we got to bring up Elizabeth Taylor for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Dre, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like every actress, and it's a stereotype that Oscar has rewarded. So there is legitimacy for it. That concept of the over-the-top scenery chewing, uglying up for a role to show how real you are, damn it. That's, I think, what she's going for here. And you need a foil where Selena and Gordon's characters are very light, very frothy, almost like they're fairy tale characters that wouldn't exist in 1965. I know that when I watched this in high school, knowing that it came out before the civil rights movement really hit its stride, I waited, I waited for somebody to shatter this illusion by using a racial slur. And Shelley Winters is the one to come in and say it. And when it happens, you're just like, <gasps> not only because it's horrible, because it's horrible, but because it's for a moment led the audience to believe that this is a world where maybe it's because we're so removed from it now. So watching it in the early 2000s is different than if I watched this in 1965. But it does feel like they live in this fairy tale where racism hasn't existed and Roseanne is that character to shatter that and say no this is what's really been happening this is how people look at this relationship Hollywood loves to have an actress do something horrible and play that big scenery chewing cigarette in hand type of thing we still do it I don't want to bring up specific movies but Judy <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it, but that sounds accurate. I have to say to just Shelly, I'm conflicted because there's always that small percentage of people that believe, and she's just a perfect storm of an example. There's always a small percentage of people that believe that she is really like that, that she was really like that off screen. That's taking a bullet for a lot of other actresses. And yeah, you can compare it to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but Elizabeth Taylor never said the N-word on screen. So I do want to give a shout out to Wallace Ford, who plays Old Pa in this movie, who is Selena's grandfather. Wallace Ford, you might remember as Frozo from Freaks when we did that episode. What I really love here, especially from a disabled standpoint, and really from a narrative standpoint, is you expect some white male foil, much like Gordon, who will be Selena's supporter. You think for a large part of the movie that that's going to be Old Pa. He takes her to the park begrudgingly, but he doesn't. He's the only one that seems to feel 
that she is being stymied. But when she is forced to rely on him, when there's this big knockdown drag out fight between Roseanne and Selena, he doesn't protect her. He says he's just a broken down old drunk. That's all he's going to be. He's sorry that he's not going to get any better and she should just learn to deal with that. And that's really realistic. When I say this movie is depressing, it shows humans for the ways that they can just be really selfish. That's real. The comparison between Roseanne and Old Pog is... Does Selena prefer the devil that she knows, which is Roseanne, who will say all these horrible things to her face and abuse her openly? Or old Pa, who sometimes is nice, but when the going gets tough, he really drops the ball. But that's Selena's arc, isn't it? It's that at the beginning, when we meet her, unlike most of these stories... Generally, when you find a character that has been isolated and abused and leading a less than, I was going to say a less than ideal life, but this is way less than ideal. When you meet them, they are yearning to break free. They are yearning to get out, to have a new life. And she doesn't want that. She literally only yearns to be able to sit in a park during the day. Her arc, which I loved because I believed the size and shape of it, it didn't feel overly dramatic like this movie can. It didn't feel melodramatic. It just felt natural. This girl had her world expanded to just these small increments of how she could envision her place in it. So when it came down to it, she didn't have to decide between the devil she knew and the devil she didn't. She just had to figure out that she was willing to bet on herself and to leave it all behind without another look and I thought that was such a beautiful shape so many beautiful things about this movie that definitely included what are our final thoughts takeaways on a patch of blue it's a movie that gave us Sidney Poitier for better and worse it's a movie that put him on the scene this actually is the most successful in his career at the time he actually took a salary cut in exchange for 10% of the film's gross so he made out like a bandit when this movie came out and it did make him a national star it's really a unique film especially when you talk about disability and the narrative that we see there it focuses on a lot of things that we don't look at the the mundane the everyday from a race relations standpoint it's very much of its time in 1965 and again i urge you to watch it and read up on Sidney poitier and read some james baldwin and look at that complicated history of poitier as a Hollywood star. But I think it's a must watch. I think it's worth it. Drea, Sam, final thoughts about Apache Blue. I adored this. I'm so glad you guys introduced me to it. An easy watch. A lot of times when you look at things and you're like, oh, is this going to be a vegetable movie? And this is not. This is just a, strangely, it's that combination of a popcorn movie that's easy to watch that leaves you with so much to think about. And I really enjoyed it. I'm so biased here. I've adored this movie for as long as I can remember, as long as I've enjoyed classic movies. Sidney Poitier is probably the biggest part of that. And I have such a deep appreciation for all of Poitier's characters, but this one in particular, you just have those beautiful, tender moments between his characters and Elizabeth Hartman's character. There's the relationship that's sort of a non-relationship, but they rely on each other. They learn so much from each other. The dialogue is beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful. The acting performances are so powerful and they really stick with you. That's my takeaway. This movie really sticks with you. You have to be in a certain mindset, but if you're ready for it, you'll really, really appreciate it. Send us your thoughts on Sydney Poitier, Apache Blue, whatever you want. Send them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on the next episode. I want to give my co-host a chance to promote what they have going on. Sam, where can fans find and get in touch with you and what's going on with your writing? I'm online at musingsofaclassicfilmaddict.com. You can find my Cooking with the Stars posts at classicmoviehub.com. I have some really good ones coming up. Nothing I can reveal yet, but they're coming. You can also follow me on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. 
Dre Clark, what about you? I am on Twitter at Dre Clark. You can follow me on Twitter at journeys underscore film, and you can check out my classic film blog, journeysandclassicfilm.com. In the next couple of days, I will have a review of the dearly departed Helter Skelter tour I took this week, a four-hour tour devoted to the Manson murders. It was actually really fascinating. I also have recast post. I decided to recast The Last of Sheila with modern actors, and I thought it was a lot of fun. So you can find that over at Journeys in Classic Film. Dot com. And that's going to close out this episode of Ticklish Business. You can listen to Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts, directly at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com, Stitcher Radio, Player FM, or Apple Podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, help us out and leave a rating and review. Apparently those things matter. And you can contact the podcast directly once again at ticklishbiz, that's B-I-Z, at gmail.com. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. If you want to support the podcast and get special pins and hear exclusive audio that no one else can get, then consider supporting us via Patreon. We have a ton of great perks. All your money goes back into making Ticklish Business as awesome as it is. If you become a patron right now, you can have up to two special buttons designed by our own Samantha Ellis, as well as a host of exclusive audio. We have my bonus podcast with William Bibiani based on a true podcast. We just did an episode on the late 1980s John Belushi biopic Wired, which is terrible. We had a lot of fun talking about it. But by the time this episode comes up, I have my interview with the director of the Jennifer Love Hewitt starring Audrey Hepburn story. We talked all about trying to turn Jennifer Love Hewitt into Audrey Hepburn. And he's got a few criticisms for us about the episode Bibbs and I did on it, which was a lot of fun. So that's over at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. So next time, I apologize for the lack of episodes. We've had some issues with Zencaster. It turns out trying to find a backup method to record these has been tricky, but I'm hoping that we will have a solution in the coming months. But we are starting off March by getting musical. We're doing musical March, all of March. We have not focused on a musical yet, so we don't know what we're doing but it will be musically inclined. I don't know about you guys, but I'm thinking we should do a whole episode in song. I'm down. Sure. <laughs> we will be back next time.